Good evening, and welcome to the party, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Clifford Brooks, and I'm your host on Dante's Old South. This month, we sit with poets, a musician, and a creative entrepreneur. Between the conversations, Krista Wells and Nicole Witt provide us music to keep the soul's toes tapping. Right now, I want to thank a few folks that keep this show afloat, like Wild Honey Teas, smart and sassy shirts and accessories designed by Misty Fletcher for ladies all over the Southeast. Then we have Lucid House Publishing, who works for the author so their readers enjoy the best in letters. With years of successful practices in this often shady business, Lucid House is the home of integrity and creativity. The Crown Restaurant in beautiful Brasstown, North Carolina, has a gluten-free menu that's delicious for all who walk through those doors. While you're there, or before you even show up, ask about staying up there in one of their quaint Airbnbs, and be sure to ask for Donna. Last but not least, we have the Red Phone Booth, it's a swanky speakeasy with locations in Georgia, Tennessee, and Texas. The ones closest to my heart are Richard Wenham, Michael Amade, and NPR and WUTC. Before we get on with Richard Blanco, let's hear Bourbon by Nicole Witt. She could blame it on the whiskey Or on him for being gone She could blame it on the weakness That won't let her be strong She could blame it on her father Who drank himself to death but she be lying through the bourbon on her breath And she could blame it on the devil She could blame it on God She could blame it on her friends Cause they won't let her stop And if she tells you that that first drink don't get her out of bed Will she be lying through the bourbon on her breath Cause it's craving It's like a fire raging Out of control There she goes again and She keeps trying and She keeps on fire Say she found the heart Say she found the strength To take the last bit of courage she has And pour it down the sink Well she could say it was easy 
We have the incomparable poet, memoirist, and educator, Richard Blanco. Richard, how are you doing this evening? Great, great. Just took a a little dip in the beach, though. I'm doing fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us about that. What happened at the beach, boss? Um, Not much. I I always try to uh, just cleanse myself in the middle (laughs) at some point in the day. And uh, uh, it's just so relaxing. It's, It's the beach. Uh, it's just so much part of my, uh, it's kind of my church, so to speak. It's a place where I go to, to, to relax, but also to, uh, to re-energize. And to, when you do re-energize and you, uh, feel the vibe to get behind, um, the keyboard or on top of a piece of paper, uh, what rituals do you go through to get into the headspace after you leave the beach? Um, I try to, it's not a whole, I mean, it's not a whole lot of, but it is a little something. Um, and, uh, I kind of always tell my students whenever they give me the whole writer, I got writer's block thing. Like there's no such thing as writer's block. It's just part of the it's part of writing, <laughs> but I always say, well, you do need to invite inspiration. So, um, I do a few things. Uh, one is I, uh, I, I read other poets and maybe a poem or two, depending on what I'm writing on. Like, let's say I'm writing a nature poem well, I might you know, take out uh, one of my favorite Mary Oliver poems or whatnot, um, just to sort of, you know, set my mind in that mode, in the poetic in the in the poetic mode and thinking about language in a different way. I also light a candle um with three wicks. Um uh one is uh I light one to my inner child, who is the perfect creator as uh Blake noted. Um I also the other wick I light to my ancestors. Um uh, to be with me and guide me. And the third wick, I like to my literary ancestors, uh, <laughs> which, uh, on which shoulders I stand. So, um, and I just sort of, I'm quiet there for a moment, uh, no more than a minute. I'm Cuban. I can't really meditate. It's just not in my blood, but even that little pause sort of just really, you know, sort of sets the mood. And then often I play music, but only certain kinds of music that are that I can write to. <laughs> and also I try to match the music to what I'm writing. Uh, you know, if I'm writing sort of a, a melancholy poem, I'll put on my, uh, you know, James Taylor, and fire and rain, you know, or something like that. Um, if writing a more racy poem, I'll, I'll do some Fleetwood Mac or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, you find yourself as a poet and, uh, you have blazed the way for a lot of different people. To backtrack into your own career, do you remember a poem, a place, or a, a moment that you found your voice and clamped on and said, "This is it"? Sure, sure. Um, so when I when I first started writing, um, uh, my sense of poetry was very archaic. But um, just uh, I started writing at twenty seven, my first career, and 
most of my career, most of my life, adult life has been engineering. Uh, and uh, a girlfriend at the time gave me uh, the Norn Anthology of Modern uh, Poetry. And I thought, is this a doorstop or what is this? So how do I even begin to peel that onion, right? So um, so I just went back to the, you know, the, the few poems that I remember from high school, which... Um, which, you know, I was in high school. I wasn't really paying attention to much. Right. Um, and one of them was the red wheelbarrow. And um, uh, the famous, you know, so much depends uh, upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater, rainwater besides the white chickens. And I'm in the family room looking out into the kitchen where my mother is cooking uh, dinner, as she has done what seems all my life every day in her tomato stained apron with the same old black cazuelas, uh, big pots that she's used forever with the same old dull nick knives that seem to have lived forever. And I just thought so much depends upon my mother with the stained apron chopping onions. And I, I was like, oh my God, that's poetry. That's that's the kind of poetry I run away. And it became sort of uh, an adage that I live by. And I don't know if I stole this from anyone, but... Um, that for me, poetry is finding the finding the extraordinary in the seemingly ordinary of every day. And I think it set my aesthetic in the sense this is the kind of poetry I want to write, poetry that is distilled, um, uh, poetry that's accessible. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't believe that accessibility and complexity are antonyms. And it also stems a little bit deeper in terms of voice. You know, I wanted to write poems for that, kids like me would want to read um, as a working class immigrant kid who had very little access to the arts and and the humanities. Something, you know, I always, I took on this self-view as a poet of the people, I think, early on. I didn't have that language back then. And um, it seems somehow that uh, not only my voice, but also my career has taken me in that direction. You've hit on a couple of topics that hit real close to my heart and I know to a lot of people's hearts. That's uh, home belonging and identity. Uh, we're often, as poets, artists, and individuals, we feel like an orphan in time sometimes. Uh, why is home belonging and identity important to you? So, um, as I always like to say, I think, um, you know, uh, poets are writing one poem on their life. We could also extend that to say, uh, you know, uh, a novelist is writing one novel all their life uh, or whatnot. But um, it seems to me that something really takes root of us uh, at some point in time, usually actually when we're quite young, uh, that a sort of a kind of obsession or a deep, deep question that we may not even know we have at the moment, but it's there. Um, and that sort of uh, informs every your entire body of work. Um, for me, that comes down to one word, home, um, and all that great big word calls into mind in terms of family, community, uh, all sorts of identities, including sexuality. That's a kind of home, right? And I always like to say that obsession took root even before I was born, <laughs> mm. uh, because as I, as I say, I was made in Cuba, assembled in Spain, and imported to the United States. So my mom leaves Cuba seven months pregnant. Um, we arrive to Madrid as exiles. I'm born 45 days after my birth. We emigrate to the United States. So I think that narrative, that obsession, those questions somehow were ready in me. Um, I, by the time I was 45 days old, I belonged to three countries, Cuba, Spain, and the United States, and yet to none. Yeah. Um, and adding to that 
that obsession. I grew up in Miami, which, as we all know, is a very unique and uh, place uh, that is very much about figuring out identity and about home, you know, especially a community of exiles. Um, and growing up between two really imagined worlds. Um, one is this Cuba that was my country, so to speak, this place we were going back to, but I'd never been there. I <laughs> was <laughs> born there. And then the mythic America that existed outside the Miami County line, right? <laughs> this other place where people didn't all speak Spanish, where there was <laughs> this other place on TV where like there were these, the white picket fence and all kinds of strange food like peanut butter and things like that. <laughs> so um so I think that also added to that idea uh, or that, like I said, that obsession or that question at home. But I'll extend it to really think it's pronounced in me, but I think it's a fundamental human driver. I always say, you know how you can be born in the same town where your great grandparents were born. And you still question home and place. You don't have to be Cuban or, or of any, you don't have to be an immigrant to, to question uh, a sense of place and identity. I think at the end of the day, um, it's universal. Um, like I said, maybe I just have a, a hypersensitivity to it that I that I use in my writing to raise those questions or those contemplations in my readers. Well, the contemplation in your readers has led to big things in your career. Uh, the mythical America. I like how you said that. And and not the so distant past. You went to the very core of this mythical America and worked with Barack Obama and walked away from the White House with a medal. Um unpack that for my listeners sure oh that's a lot of unpacking <laughs> i had to write a book to unpack that actually it was a, a small uh what i call a memoirette um but it's kind of a bell letters kind of uh thing because i it was one of those experiences it, it was the first time that i ever felt that urgency to write because i needed to record something to make sure it happened <laughs> like it was crazy what happened so um so i could say a few things about that um you know it's interesting um uh, at the time when I got called by the White House, um, I had was living in Maine full time and I had sort of put the question of home at bay for a bit um, and just sort of accepting that perhaps, uh, as Basho said, uh, you know, uh, life is a journey and the journey itself is home and just live in that in that unknown. Um, and then uh, when the White House called, all those questions of home and belonging like just sort of erupted again, right? Because here I am supposed to like represent America and write a poem for America. <laughs> and so um, the hardest part about that experience was actually asking the question that I wouldn't dare, that I, that were difficult to ask was, do I love this country? Um, really? I, at 44, I still wasn't sure that I belonged to that mythic America, right? Or that, well, I knew that mythic America didn't exist anymore. I didn't, I wasn't sure. The American narrative included me exactly. And also, does this country love me back? Right. You can't fake a poem without something honest to it. And so the, the, the inaugural poem is in some way a response to that in the affirmative saying, yes, my story is part of America. Everyone's story is part of America. That's part of what, uh, this great experiment of a democracy is right. Um, out of the many one. So in that moment, uh, of, uh, representing, so to speak, I, uh, I was just finally felt like I was home. Like, I mean, when you get up on that podium, well, first of all, I should say my mother, my mother was sitting next to me and she's the person that I took to sit on the platform. I had other guests, but she's the one. And I'm thinking this woman grew up in a dirt floor home in Cuba and she's sitting steps away from, from the president and vice president. So I just thought, 
wow, this is it. This is finally it. Like I am home. Like I've always been home in some ways. Right. Um, when I get, get up to the podium, um, the president and vice president both shake my hand and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> I was like, it was such a, I mean, I was just racing to the port you know, to get it over with, but, um, it was such a beautiful gesture because it was like sort of presenting me to, to my, to my own country. It wasn't like, Oh, read a poem for the King. It was such a warm gesture. Um, and, um, I really didn't get to, uh, speak to the president then, but I was invited to the Oval Office a few months later. And that was a real sort of debriefing and the heart to heart and, um, and, uh, really talking about, uh, our sensibilities of like, you know, if you think about, uh, President Obama's background, it's even more complicated than made in Cuba assembled and spaded for the United States. And, you know, we kind of having, having those same questions about who are we in this country? Do we fit the narrative? Um, what does that mean even? So, uh, I think that was a connection point between him and I and, and the work. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I, I just felt so embraced finally, uh, for better or for worse, you know, I, it's not like, oh, America is great. Like I knew, I know it's still a work in progress, but it gave me, it gave me a sense of more purpose as an American to continue to write about us and change, change what we can change, um, and move things forward and keep on working at uh, this work in progress. And the award, just about the award, because uh, you got to hobnob with Bruce Springsteen as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> Julia Louis Dreyfus, and yep, Fair Wang, Colson Whitehead. That, that was the next group. Uh, Amy Tan. Um, so that was a very different experience, uh, just as special, but in a different way. Number one, I didn't have to write a poem, so <laughs> and read it to a million people and forty million on TV. So uh, it was much more. Uh, it was really just such a beautiful, just plain old acknowledgement, right, of, um, of of my life and my work, and it felt so special in a different way, uh, um, just amazing, um, you know. Again, to think, you know, I still sometimes pinch myself. This little working class gay kid from a, you know, from a downtrodden suburb in Miami is in the White House talking to Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> so, so. Um, uh, but yeah, um, I mean, it was really, really beautiful in that sense. Um, I'll tell you a couple of anecdotes. So, uh, uh, when we're, it's a really, I didn't know it was such a big deal, but it, I mean, I mean, in terms of it's very ceremonious, they have like a, you know, a huge band, Navy band. And so you're walking in and you march in a procession and, and I start getting misty and like, you know, visibly moved and I, go to my seat and I'm sitting next to Kamala Harris <laughs> and she grabs my hand and says, just breathe into it, honey. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was, that was amazing. Um, and then, um, Bruce Brickstein, believe it or not, um, we had this great conversation about, you know, he knows his poetry. I mean, he, he, he told me that he usually likes to write a poem first and then turn that into lyrics. So he knows his, he knows his beat poets. He knows, you know, he's really, and you can tell from his songs, right? So that was a beautiful moment. And the other thing I should say overall, everybody was so not like no airs. Like everybody was so, so humbled in the same way that I was, that I was, what, this is crazy. Like, 
but you're like Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what are you even doing here? Like, can't you just tell, tell them? Wouldn't you just tell them to send you the award? <laughs> like, everybody was truly honored and humbled, and so that that felt amazing. That there are so many that good things happen to good people, and and luckily, I I think I was you know to be in that lot is was really really special. Become special in your art. It, it takes a great deal of sacrifice and hard work, and that's in any field when people want to to create lasting, true success. That success also comes from an innate desire to to be your best self in your vocation. And so, the technical always fascinates me on how you build your way up. And you said something earlier about uh, uh, accessibility and complexity not being antonyms. How how do you work those two? How do you hem those two into a tapestry that's harmonious? Um, so I think, um, what I try to do is try to think about, man, I'm telling a very particular story, right? Like about Cuban American gay or whatnot, and, and not in every poem, but that's certainly what informs my life. And of course, in, in, in many, many ways, but I'm always sort of seeking what is the, the common human denominator? What is the, the human emotion? And I think according to psychologists, there's like five, there's really only five core emotions. I forget what they are. One of them is not anger as I learned in poetry, (laughs) but it's the symptom emotion. So what I try to do is, um, uh, sort of weave the particulars of my life, but always with the eye on, okay, Richard, what is this main universally? What is the feeling here? And how am I using imagery or how am I contextualizing things so that anyone from any background can sort of connect with that um and from any and from all walks of life and from any any kind of educational background um i really i can't i mean literally i can't write any other way right because i wasn't I, I didn't grow up with like reading you know <laughs> um t.s ali and so like or or <laughs> What's that Irish guy that's really called Joyce? And Joyce. So, like, I mean, like I just can't write any other way, really. So I don't want to take too much credit. It's just I write, I, I I write as the person that I am and the person I see myself in the world. I feel I am an accessible person. My life is accessible to people. Therefore, the poem sort of can't be anything else. But I do try to always, um, you know, um, distill that in a way that um, I'm that. Well, let me be, as Gwendolyn Brooks said, you know, poetry is life distilled. I hope I'm not misquoting her or if that's the wrong quote for somebody else. But, um, and so I think that's the job, the poet's job uh, is to distill things, to do the work so that, again, finding the, in a way, finding the extraordinary and the seemingly ordinary, but, um, but not making it so complex that you can't see the ordinariness of it. Um, so distilling things, doing the work, the, doing the psychological work. I think is part of that. Like, you know, okay. Sometimes I read poems and like, um, who do I send the therapist bill to? Because it looks like you're just kind of haven't figured anything out. Like, and nothing tortures about figuring anything out, but, uh, I feel like, the, you know, there's a show going on in your brain and there's only one ticket. And like, <laughs> you know? and I'm like, I'm sorry. That is just rude. Like I, do the work, you know, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, like, I, like Einstein said to, you know, any, anybody can take something complicated as love, you know, make it more complicated. <laughs> um, so I guess that's always been my approach, uh, um, in terms of the particulars that I have to deal with, right. Cause I'm not assuming all my audiences know Spanish or, or, or ethnic background, much less Latino. 
um, again, what is, you know, what is, am I just spitting out cultural data about my life or am I connecting it to something that is universal, uh, in the sense of an emotion, right? So I'll give you an example, like one of the poems, one of my very first poems in this collection from my, well, the, the very first poetry assignment I had in my very first creative writing class, which was write a poem about America, the same poem. Barack gave assignment, the same poem, <laughs> poetry assignment that Barack gave me. Um, it's about this yearning of this sort of, kid, you know, this, uh, this kid who wants to, for the first time, have, you know, um, turkey at Thanksgiving in his Cuban family instead of pork. So it's just a little narrative poem about that. But what I'm really working off of is, right, first of all, you don't have to be Cuban to have a dysfunctional Thanksgiving. <laughs> Second of all, it's just desire, right? Who hasn't want to, who hasn't wanted to be that other thing that you think is the more exotic or the more, and in a way it's a reverse exoticism, right? Like, like I'm exoticizing that America with the Turkey at the middle with, you know, the mother dressed in pearls and a pleated skirt. And like, meanwhile, everybody in my house is like, in spandex and starts dancing like halfway through we throw the turkey in the trash and they, my mother brings out you know the the pork roast so so uh but what's the base emotion so i try to think about what is this story that i'm telling what is how is it connecting on that level you've distilled your life into a, another collection of brilliance um and that's not out yet but it will be soon tell us about your new book and how it's different from your previous books sure so um so the new book of um, homeland of my body uh, is the title is very telling um but having gone through all the various iterations and questions about about home um and i won't bore you with the details but you know it home is a constantly changing thing like love because our experiences change we change um different things affect about what we need from a home so in the last iteration before this one this which was how to love a country it was a really big book in terms of i was thinking about question of home but more in the context of nation right you know not what home means to me but what home means to us the poetry of we versus the poetry of us and in a way this this new work is a uh, i wouldn't say a reaction to that but i needed to go quieter I, I needed, I was like, that's a, that, like, a, it was great to be big, but I needed to go inside more. And I think part of that was affected also by the pandemic uh, and partly also turning middle age, um, sort of contemplate, you know, it's a time to pause and, and see where you are, where you have been, where you are and where you might be going. And so on the question of home, uh, it, just i it just i started writing all these poems about the body and really small things like getting a cut on my palm or like <laughs> um it's just i can't you know it's a mystery of creativity but i don't know exactly how but i know i think i can articulate it now it's still so new but the idea being that i've come to sort of somewhat of a conclusion or a temporary conclusion that home is in the body in that sense that home is I've never lost or gained a home. That home is every single place that I have treasured or abandoned or had or haven't had, that it's all the sum experiences of of all those memories and all those uh all those moments and all all that all that thinking about home. And so home now really digging into the very psyche of home versus home being a traditional a physical place. 
So the book is in a way, I think, around that a series of attempts at surrenderings. One is, as I mentioned, surrendering that that sort of notion of home as this, uh, as a physical place or place that you live in, right? Like, okay, I live in Miami. Like, I love Miami. What does that even mean? You know, like, so um, uh, the other one is abandoning the ego um, and in the sense that the ego is, you know, the, the one that has to find paradise. I have, oh, you, know, you know, you know those people, right? Like, well, I'm moving to like whatever because this place stinks and like, yeah, you'll be happy over there. Sure. You call me in two years because no matter where you are, there, you, no matter where you go, there you are. There you are. But the idea of uh, sort of surrendering that that need to have that paradise, that that perfect place that you think is going to make you happy forever and ever. And then also uh, abandoning or surrendering or, again, attempting to surrender the inherited trauma of exile and immigration. Um, I mean, I got here when I was 45 days old, as I mentioned. But I think I I think I I was the inheritor of a lot of especially my mother because my mother left her entire family behind in Cuba her eight brothers and sisters parents every aunt and uncle every niece and nephew every cousin and I think I just felt that uh, you know in, in her womb even uh, but also growing up with her it was like growing up with half a mother you could set that sense of longing and loss was permeated throughout that, permeated the household. Um, and so, um, and also my exile community at large, right? I mean, it, we live, you know, I'm not saying they've imposed it. I mean, I've gladly taken it on. We live with always the sense of loss of, 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 of wanting to reconnect with our, what we think is our truest selves or ourselves we may have lost. And so um, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> I'm done there. Like, as a good therapist would say, you can't, you know, you can't change anybody, just yourself, right? Um, so, not that I regret; it's just been part of the journey. But I've realized I have to let that go. Um, and the way my my mother has let it go too, after all these decades, you know, I just, I, I I'm I'm done with that part of the questioning, and so. Um, yeah, so that that's it in a nutshell. Uh, it's very exciting, but like I said, it's still so new. You know, I, I think I don't know if this this happens to you, Clifford, but like I, I always say my poems are smarter than me because I I'm still not sure you know what my babies are going to grow up to be and tell me what they really think about me. <laughs> and so I'll just you know they keep on informing me like oh yeah like that I never noticed that yeah oh yeah that's what I was feeling <laughs> so uh, yeah. And speaking of home, you've uh, you built a new one in your new collection. Uh, would you allow us a keyhole peek into that with a poem? Sure. Um, so uh, this poem is called A Good Day to Die, um, which is uh, ironic, I think. But um, it's really about that, uh, you know, those days that we all have that for some reason we're full, full, filled with grace and gratitude. Um, and sort of, or, you know, those moments where we like, we can feel we can let it all go. So following these themes of surrender, it's part of that, of just surrendering all these ambitions and the ego and that quest for, for home in some ways as well. Um, so here we go. A good day to die. When there's nothing but a knowing, when you wake up to the stare of your dog's eyes like tiny brown suns shining with the truth of all you are before the alarm rings when you lock your door 
turn up the volume and dance barefoot, swaying alone with your eyes closed, your robe open to the world, and all you lust for is a song to hold your body when you beam a good morning at the post office or great to see you at the market, meeting every word cut by your lips into little jewels that sparkle with syllables of kindness when you toss your to-do list in the garbage, waste yourself in the lazy beauty of being witness to the gestures of an oak, a squirrel's dramatic pause, or the frenzy at the bird feeder, when you sit under the clouds for dinner, filled with gratitude for more than bread, and say grace for dusk's feast of savory hues, and the dessert of sugary stars that indulge your soul, when you smile back at your smile floating in the fog of the bathroom mirror. Your faint yet fulfilled eyes return the gaze of God within you, pleased with the honest life you've given yourself. When all that's left is a knowing that you don't need to know yet another home and some new city for the love of something other than you, blanketed in the peace of your worn bed, ready to die with all you are or aren't, all you've given or gotten, all you've believed or doubted, all you've done or haven't done, ready to kiss the moon's cheek goodbye forever. But the moon says, no. Not yet. I can't even look at you right now, dude. I can't even look at you. <laughs> like I said, you know, I like I said, I think there are attempts at surrender, right? <laughs> like, and um, and I think so much that reading that poem again, it's teaching me still, right? But reading that poem again is like how poems are always about, not always, but so much of poetry is about this moment of potential transformation and like sort of a, a, an expansion and then a contraction like something i can't explain it well enough but um so you're you know you're ready to go but like nah <laughs> like you're letting go for that moment but you know you still got work to do <laughs> and the work to do the work to do the work to do man it, it's it's labor but it's not awful and it's not meant to be scary but it's there yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's what I like to weave into every show. And, and so as we get round out to a soft end here, um, I love the question, what practical technical advice do you give those who would like to make poetry a, a part of their vocation? So, um, I have a, a perhaps a, a, quite a, I think, a, I think I'm the only poet engineer in the United States, maybe not, but so, uh, for reasons that were beyond my control, again, working class family immigrant, you know, I studied a very traditional career engineering. Um, and also was, uh, like I said, uh, practicing civil engineer all my life. And I, what I learned from that, um, I think that, uh, and I do often talk with students and people in general that struggle with that, you know, how do I do this for as a life? Um, so I always say, look, you got to feed, you got to feed the addiction somehow, unless you're a trust baby. So find something that you really genuinely like to do it might not be your first calling uh but i enjoyed my engineering in fact i miss it um um and that's gonna you know allow you uh to pursue your art now here's the here's the caveat 
we can get very wrapped up in that something else and forget our vision. So you can't lose sight of, of that goal, right? So um, I refused promotions at, at my firm. Um, at some point, I struck a deal with him and said, I want to work 30 hours a week um, and you're, I want full benefits and I'm just going to make you a lot of money and I don't want to manage anybody. I just want to be able to have time to write and to travel for readings and stuff. So you kind of just strike a deal with your life and then you, you know, you, you just, you have to keep on showing up, but, um, but having, uh, having, uh, and people are different, have different levels of, um, how it is, um, pain tolerance. It's like, mm -hmm. that's like how much they're willing to feel like, uh, unstable in terms of the finances in their future. I'm certainly not that person again, probably as an immigrant, that's like very scary to me, but, um, you know, I found, um, I found that that put my mind at ease that I could actually create more easily. I mean, I, I never had an ambition of being published. I just was going to graduate school. I wasn't going to ch change careers. I just was really doing it for the sheer pleasure of learning, of, of express, of being creative, following my creative and intellectual curiosities. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I I, tr I carried both. I was engineer by day, poet by night until, and then like we all do, we just toss our head in the ring and pray for something big to happen. Um, uh, I couldn't plan Obama calling me to be inaugural poet who plans winning. You know, you can't, you can't plan those things. You just got to do your work, keep on challenging yourself um, and wait for the big break, um, I guess. Um, and, or, um, well, I should say uh, there's also, uh, again, doing something else means something also related to your, you know, doing a podcast, <laughs> you know, right? Like mm -hmm. something, something that is also something that's related that can feed your spirit and, uh, as a writer, but it's also paying you, um, or to some degree. So, yeah, I, I've always looked at it that way. Uh, in practically it's, it's, uh, for me is a little bit of like Maslow you know hierarchies like mm -hmm. uh you know and i think you know so many people and mostly a lot of students that whole okay so i was going to say one more thing that i think people really should hear because i think there's some shame in that and you have to get over the shame like that whole starving artist thing is look at the biographies of most artists okay <laughs> like they have all unique paths and it wasn't like necessarily they're starving to death and they did die for their art, you know, like, but, you know, uh, I just think that sometimes it, I had shame over it, you know, oh, I'm not a real poet because I'm an engineer. And actually that's what people find really interesting uh, as, as part of my career as well. And also, believe it or not, it's affected the way I write, um, but there is no shame in earning a living at something again don't let don't lose sight of of the dream because that's it's so easy to do because nobody in the world is asking you to write a poem you know <laughs> well so we don't lose sight of you how do we keep up with you your tour dates and how do we buy your books online sure so um uh let's see where do i begin so website is www <laughs> does anybody even say that anymore <laughs> richard 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 dash blanco.com i just redid it so i'm really happy with it got some cool pictures um uh instagram is uh richard blanco poet uh and facebook is richard blanco poetry um books anywhere uh 
<laughs> anywhere toothpaste is sold. No, <laughs> and really any, uh, you know, your typical beacon, you know, of course, beacon, uh, would be the place to go. The publishers, uh, and of course, uh, independent booksellers, um, uh, one, uh, huge one that's here in my hometown of Miami is books and books, which I think a lot of people know about. Um, so, um, you can get, yeah, most anywhere in line. As far as Twitter is, you know, I've never published a book in the fall and it's really complicated. So I'm like almost like not having a tour yet because <laughs> between Thanksgiving and between taking a break from between semesters and, you know, bookstores sort of shut down in terms of appearances starting early December. But I do have uh, one big thing coming up in uh, uh, October 27th in Portland, Maine. And that's with Governor Janet Mills, who is uh, uh, a fictionado of poetry and a poet in her own right. So we're going to have Medulla reading and a conversation. Um, and that'll be fun. And uh, then uh, December 2nd at Books and Books in Miami is the big one of the big launches here and then Miami book fair for those of you who might be here, um, which is, I believe the 17th and 18th, they haven't given me which date or time, but it's always that weekend. And that'll be a, a big thing with, um, Campbell McGrath and conversation, my mentor, which will be great to sort of come full circle with this kind of book, which is sort of a mid-career book. And he knows every poem in there. So, uh, well, he's, he knew that first poem that got me started on, on this path of home. Um, and then, um, yeah, all my events are also listed. There's always there's also workshops and things like that, and you know, so on my website they're they're all listed down there. So you can always check in there. We will, Richard Blanco. It has been an an honor to say the least to have you on this show, man. And we'll have you back soon, brother. Thank you, thank you, Clever. Thanks for thanks for doing this. It's it's uh, it's such a great uh, great to be supported in this way. Well, it's real easy, boss. We'll see you soon. Now, <laughs> see ya. <laughs> Let's take a breath and listen to Clear by Nicole Witt. Like a diamond, like moonshine, like staring into heaven through the stars in a Colorado night sky. It's clear. Like a warm breeze through a window Like diving in the water and you see to the bottom of Kilago It's clear, whoa
And up now on Dante's, we have singer and songwriter Krista Wells. Krista, how are you doing? I'm doing great today. Thanks. It is beautiful to have you on the show, and I look forward to what's to come. And to begin with all 10 toes in the ground, I want to talk about family. Uh, as an artist begins their career, it's often in childhood and a critical point of uh, the trajectory that takes and how fast they get there is often um, in the hands of the parents. Many parents uh, try to talk their kids out of a career in the arts, but yours were not only supportive, they were also playful. Tell me about hmm. that. Yeah, my dad was the one who is who was overtly playful, um, thought of himself as playful. My mom uh, didn't get to play a lot as a child, so she didn't consider herself playful. And yet... As a non-singer, non-performer, non-artist, she somehow decided to take it upon herself to lead church musicals for children, like to put them together, organize them, and run the whole thing top to bottom for years. So my mom would deny having much of an impact on my music, and yet she created spaces for me and for all these other kids to practice. Um and we always had a piano in the house. Uh, we moved a lot because my dad was in the army. And with every move, they would sit us down and talk about what we were going to experience in the next city or town as if it was a grand adventure. You know, we're, yes, we're saying goodbye and that is hard and feel your feelings, but also it's going to be so cool, you know? And, and so my dad was a runner, an athlete, not an active artist, although he liked to sing. And we did sing together growing up. But um, he just taught me the value of being in the moment and being open to uh, imp improvising, really, which is, you know, central to art making. And so everything was play. And there was also, of course, back then, a lot uh, fewer screens. So we, uh, you know, and in the army, we lived in Germany for four years, had one American channel. Um, so we spent most of our childhood outdoors making stuff up. So that, that was my, the climate of my childhood was um, freedom to play, freedom to create, freedom to imagine, freedom to get lost in my own thoughts. And my parents were, uh, they didn't seem afraid. They didn't seem afraid of it. I don't know that they thought I was going to grow up and make a career out of it. <laughs> but yeah, they were there for it. The compassion that you bring into your art, the the resilience that you must have begun to galvanize at a young age while moving around so much. Resilience and compassion. They 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 go hand in hand really with when art is pulled off with success and you've done that. Um, how does that play out for you? How do you bring that to others? Um, well, first, I just want to say, I love those two words so much, resilience and compassion. Um, and resilience was a word given to me actually just a few years ago by a close friend. I just had never thought of that word as being connected to me. I didn't know I had it. And a new friend experiencing me for the first time over a few weeks said, you have a lot of resilience. I was going through a divorce. I was single parenting and trying to do music and all of this in a new town. And so now I can look at that word and see how resilience was a massive part of my upbringing as we moved around every couple years. And, um, and then going through 
the loss of my marriage brought that to surface in a way where I got to discover a strength in myself that I didn't know I had. That had the roles that I had embodied didn't weren't centered around me being strong, powerful, or resilient. Yet I've discovered that. So a lot of my songwriting the last few years has been about that, about, you know, it's the tapping into the whole Phoenix rising um, idea that what can we make with what we've been given, however sparse it seems, which is inherent to the process of making a song, <laughs> making a, a radio show, podcast, a painting, using what's spread out before you. And of course, compassion goes hand in hand with that because if you have the need to be resilient, which we all do at some point or another, it's because we've suffered. And suffering fosters compassion for others who are experiencing similar things. So a lot of my the themes of my songs have had to do with compassion and resilience. Um, and then I'd say a lot of my other work uh, has to do with coming alongside other artists and helping them to see what they've got available to them and how to tap into that and how to be disciplined and strong and stronger than they thought and compassionate towards themselves when they're not doing it right <laughs> exactly it is it is there's it's a, it speaks to the importance of a community not just in the home mm. uh not you know just i mean to the the safety how we feel outside of it but in the art world i mean it could be tough um how has community at large and, and specifically the art community really influenced your work or, or empowered you in that way? It's been everything, even in the seasons when I didn't really perceive that there was much art community available to me. I lived in North Carolina for a long time in an area where there were many nurses and IT engineers, but not a lot of artists. And it felt lonely you know, um, we need feedback. We need to have sounding boards. We need to be with people who get it, um, who can challenge us and share resources. So it was hard to come by in those years uh, for a while. Now I live in Nashville and it's much easier to, you know, just all of us are just here. But even when I was in North Carolina, um, I found friends there to to make music with, to tour with. I made friends here and I made a point of investing in those friendships by traveling, you know, making that drive out here every couple months. Um, one of my best friends, Nicole Witt, is a country writer, and she started inviting me into her co-writes and introducing me to people. Um, I I don't know that I would be doing what I'm doing. Well, I'm quite sure I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without her. Um and, and, you know, a lot of those connections that got, you know, opened the doors in the first place, business-wise, were friends from college, you know, so it's community all around. Um, and that's now what I have turned around and tried to make easier for other artists because I create community and I invite people um, to come together. Artists can tend to be a little bit self-pitying, you know. We can get in our feelings and in the ways that create great art and also the ways that limit our potential to impact. And uh, we need the community and we have to be more proactive than we often are in, in creating that. But yeah, I could go on and on because it's affected me on every level. And especially, of course, when I was trying to create while going through a divorce, while relocating, while single parenting. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know 
how I would have done any of that without community. And it's worth mentioning that I include in that all of the patrons and Kickstarters, backers of my projects. um, None of it would be out in the world without those people. So that's an extension of community as well. And the community has uh, really flocked around you due to your unique voice. And you have a stalwart, unmoving belief in staying true to your unique voice, not and not selling that out to you know please people. I want your yeah. opinion on that. How do you say it? Yeah, it's something that I think I always it's always been in me to be that way, but I didn't recognize it. Um, it's funny, but about twelve years ago, this Anglican priest came up to me at a wedding and said, "I heard some of your songs. My wife was playing them in the car." you're subversive. And I was like, and, but he said it with a smile, like he was happy about it. And I was like, really? I didn't see myself that way. Um, Now I do. Now I, (laughs) I see that I have a way of seeing things we all do. And um, I'm, I'm really loyal to that. I'm loyal to the way that I have been given to see the world. Um, And it has, cost me opportunities at times along the way because I seem to be incapable of creating when I don't care about what I'm creating. And that it can come in really handy when you're trying to make a living if you're willing to just like churn it out, you know. But um I just kind of come draw blank. I don't have much to offer in those scenarios. So I have found that I'm what works for me is to tapping into what is very um, true for me, what what I'm passionate about, what where my convictions are. And so when I say I'm true to my voice, it's, you know, my my singing voice could use more training. I know that. <laughs> I I mean I sing fine, but I've I've there's always room to grow in that. My internal voice, that's the voice that I'm loyal to the most and and more and more. By the day. And that's my passion now for other people because I think, especially women, I was, especially women, obviously, tradition in traditional cultures and traditional roles. Um, I grew up a lot in the South and in the church. No, I love all of those places, but um, there is a tendency for people like me to stay smaller and quieter than we actually are meant to be. And I've it's been a, quite a journey to embrace that. So I'm now I'm quite passionate about empowering others, other artists to step into that, say, you know, take some chances. It's a let them cancel you. <laughs> yeah, if that's what they want to do. <laughs> You've had several albums out. Your career is extraordinarily impressive. Um from the community that's influenced you to your unique voice, uh, the best way for the uh, audience to obviously find that is to listen to it. Um, d- just don't list off what you've done. Tell us a little about it, a little about each project, please. The, well, the very first project I did, nobody would probably find. It was me and my sister. You know, it was a poster for posterity project. Um, <laughs> so that was like, here are songs we've written over the last twenty years. Let's record them. Um, but then I. I started realizing there are a lot of songs that um, are not going to ever be cut by anybody else. So it's me or it's nobody. And, you know, if you're a writer, you get it. It's heartbreaking to have this pile of 
work there. So my first project, um, I don't know what to say about that, really. I, it, it It's close to my heart, but it also feels like a different version of me. It's so far away. It's called Frame the Clouds. So special. Um, I did a project called How Emptiness Sings. Similar. I was. I think I was starting to tap into some of the sorrows that maybe I... I think I was doing more wrestling by then and wasn't uh, had not previously been willing to look at some things, but I was growing into that. Um, Feed Your Soul was a robust, collaborative project. I did a covers album that was dear to my heart, strangely, in 2015. And that was important to me because I was wanting to shake up my audience a little bit. Um, I was feeling myself, even though I hadn't yet gone through my divorce, I hadn't gone through an outward change, but musically, I was feeling like I need to let them in. I need to let people in on this other aspect of myself. And I felt like the, a transitional way to do it would be to borrow from these songs that had shaped me in the 80s and 90s, you know, U2 and um, Depeche Mode and Nirvana. So that covers album was really special to me, although hardly anybody heard it. <laughs> but, it but it did do some uh, sifting. And I think sometimes that's important in our work is to let people fall away and let new people come in who are now a better fit. So really, I can say more about the, the recent projects. One um, was Velveteen. I made that right after I moved to Nashville, shortly after. And that was made while I was going through divorce. So um, it's not a depressing album at all. It's not like I'm writing narratives about my personal divorce, but that's what I was going through while I was writing, while I was fundraising, while I was in the studio. Um, Pacific is the next part of that. Pacific is a sequel. It's me feeling like I'm being born into a new era of my own life here. A new version of me is emerging there's a pioneering spirit. It's really um, inspired by the West Coast. So I spent some time out there. Um, and then my most recent uh, project is called Redwood. And it's it's uh, kind of feels like an arrival of sorts internally. In Like um, Redwood is the embodiment of being taking up all the space you're meant to take up. And the voice being a pivotal song on that album too. It's about being being the voice, like we were talking about. So th those three have a more like clear movement because of what I was going through at the time. I'm going to get into one song in particular in a minute, but okay. before I do, before I do that, tell us how we find you online and buy your music. Um, well, I stream everywhere, like everybody. So wherever you like to stream your music, that's where you should go. Um, I'm on Instagram in terms of social media more than other social media. So that'd be Krista Wells music on Instagram. And, um, I do have a website, kristawellsmusic.com, but I would say my most frequent communication other than Instagram would be emails that I send out weekly to a community called artist and artistand.org. It's a community of artists for artists that I founded with Nicole Witt. And I send out an email about creativity and the art artistic life. 
this song we're gonna have to hone in on is called ready to go and it's special to you um tell us how it became and why it's special so it's uh it's the last song on the pacific album and the first line is i'm starting over and that's the theme of the song is i'm ready to i'm ready to leave what uh what has let go of me essentially i'm ready to let go of this season i'm ready to let go of even the season of mourning um ready to let go of what i had that i wanted to hold on to so it um it's pretty straightforward in that sense i love the writing of it it was one that just really felt artful and beautiful and right every line and every word to me felt like true and beautiful i loved singing it um Interestingly, I didn't write it right after my divorce. I wrote it after a, a my first relationship following divorce happened. That depression, that sadness hit me harder almost. And I think it was just like it opened up, you know, the the floodgates and all of the marriage stuff came through this relationship. So I wrote it at the end of that uh, dating relationship, but it really was encompassing all of it, you know, everything that I was ready to let go of. Um, yeah, that's it. Krista, it has been a true pleasure to talk with you tonight. Thank you. Likewise. All right. And as we roll into the next one, let's hear Ready to Go by Krista Wells. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That was good, man. Uh, I'm always, uh, my only uncertainty when I do these things is I'm like, how much talk, like each answer I can talk. I can, like you said, I can talk forever. And I'm like, yeah, should it be? No, I, I watched you. I watched you time it in your head. Just whatever, <laughs> whatever it's worth. Like when, okay. when, you're, when you start to go, I think that's it. That's it. Like you yeah. do, you, like you nail it now. And like, it's, it makes my job easy because when people stop too long, it's been like, I mean, there's just that second too long. And I start to go, eh, and then they kick, back. Like, oh, shit. you know? So I can tell that you're, yeah, because writers don't know what the fuck they're doing. They don't, they don't. <laughs> it always has to be like, that's why I, when I get music, that's why I emailed you that. When you, when you even got down to the technical, like, oh, I don't have to explain this. <laughs> you know, they'll be in a bathroom with the echo so bad. And I'm like, do you have any headphones? Do you yes. No, does that help? Yes. <laughs> I emailed you that. I know you know that. You can read. So awesome. Oh, man. This is great. And like I said, the 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 air of this, uh, I talked to Alicia Saturday. She okay. came to see my she came to see my panel, and uh, which is about ma male masculine masculine vulnerability and poetry, and all of us dudes are laughing about it. That's every day. That's the easiest yes. thing to talk about. Like, That's, it's this, <laughs> and then walk off. You know, just, like, this is the easiest shit ever. Autumn picked on. We got there, and she's like, "Do you know what you're talking about?" Now I'm a professional. I swear to God, I am. And it, but details. I didn't. I mean, I knew it wasn't. Okay, I had an idea, and she, but she caught me. And she's like, "You don't know, do you?" I said, like, well, "Yeah, it's poetry." And she's so patient. She's like, "It's about male that male vulnerability." I thought she was bullshitting me. I was like, "No, really, what's it about?" Sometimes it's there is sometimes an advantage to not knowing what you're yeah, going to be talking yeah, about. Yeah. Sometimes, like, it's, like if you if you've been doing talking enough that you can pull anything out, like it can feel fresher and better when I when you don't know too much God, well even sure. like this I mean I didn't yeah. really fully know and I was like because sometimes if I really know I'll get too much in my head and I me too. do too much me too. I've never listened to one of my shows my own voice puts <gasps> me out I can't do it 
You're kidding me. Mm-mm. Your voice is amazing. The minute you started talking, I was like, well, no wonder Anna fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's so she's like, you didn't talk this deep in high school. I was like, that was 30 years ago. I have smoked a lot. Of pot. I mean, yeah, you know, so it's, you know, I'm like, got my daddy's accent and everything else came with time. Well, your, your accent is also like, this is probably totally not politically correct, but Living in the South, there are Southern accents I enjoy and Southern accents I don't enjoy. And oh, yours, I, yours is the kind that I enjoy. So I yeah. I really appreciate oh, I, I know, it. I know exactly. Because I live in North Georgia and I, and I can do theirs too. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not right. making fun it's of them. Right, it's different. It's different. It's more of a clip. Yeah. You know, it's like, and middle, like the, and the hard oh, R's. It is. Yeah, I can't do I have. I sound like a pirate when I do it. On the last, <laughs> I, mean, I don't. Are like that's worse. It's the, the my accent is laziness. That's, I, I'm honestly, I think when I look back on how we speak, it's just it's like if you could talk in cursive, that's that's what it's, we do. It's, I it's, love it's, that. Yeah. Oh, that's a cool way of saying it. Yeah. It yeah. feels it feels uh, musical. It feels gentler than the other southern accents. My my one of my landlords in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, when we first moved there was had a similar accent. And I, I just loved listening to it. It was like a, I didn't know how to describe it. it for that, it felt like it would be out of a movie of the old South. You know, they, yeah. they were Reuben and Bessie, Bessie and Reuben. <laughs> what'll, what'll, what'll blow your mind is that I, I swear, this is my, I, uh, I grew up in a plantation house. You did? I swear. Yeah. We call oh. it the estate because, and Anna, don't you, you can tell I don't care. She was like, <laughs> she's like, I will not stand in this house full of sin. I was like, baby, we, we didn't. We didn't have any slaves. We didn't. I'm not that old. Not I had to explain the geography. Like the house is on the road. Like we don't have. And it's. Just, and it's. It, it never makes me mad because yeah. like there's. That's what you think of when you think. Right. Of, you know. But you know, it's like that was just a, an Adam. It was just a state of a house. You know. Right. And so, um, you know, and right. My daddy was like because she was never. You know, she's not mad about it, but she's political. You know. Yeah. And so daddy was like, honey, no, look, let me tell you this about the house, and then she just, okay. Okay, and she became at ease with that. She just, and it's just, I fell in love with her when she's like, she's even more so when she looks over, it's like, okay, I deem this house okay. You know, like, well, I'm glad you agree. Come on, I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. You know, so yeah, it's a, but what's cool, I'll, I'll just, I'll let you go. Um, the, My company's first, which is the Southern Collective Experience. I'll send you a link and I'll, yeah. I will not drag this out. It did, it, it, I love what you talked about, what you talk about with the community, with uh, art and mm. uh, we we create a similar thing with artists where I, it was the Festival of the Books exactly 10 years ago when I met the first, it was my first professional exposure to uh-huh. the business world. And I say it without any de- depression, but I thought, wow, there's a lot of, there lacks the, the you mentioned some of like professionalism. Mm. Like there's, yeah. you know, every, every job with a hierarchy and power, there's going to be some backbiting and stuff. But holy God, like the, the, it, it, but it, where I saw this, this unrest and, 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 um, and lack of, uh, of, uh, responsibility, I saw an enormous poss- uh, opportunity not to exploit anybody, but you, like in any life, any, any vocation, you find, oh, there's one person that's cool and there's another person that's cool. Yeah. I wonder if I work with it. And, and it became just a safe space where artists who at some level made their, made their living on their art. That's, that's, integral to getting a right getting away from bullshit yeah uh that that when it, as cheesy as it sounds that you can go to them when you get a contract or you get a new album deal something that is is very rare and yeah. that it's very cool and yes all of it to itself to you without sharing it it's awesome and you damn well know that 
98% of the public who want it can't have it. But man, you'd love to just tell somebody and then yeah. go, dude, that's that's awesome. Yes. And then they won't want any of it. There's no, it just right, nice. like, right. it is. And if you were here, I'd punch you in the face for saying that. But that's <laughs> great. Yeah. Not really, I'm not. But, you know, it's, you hear that there's, there's usually a, there's a tagline, a pregnant pause. And, and in that, you see them scrambling for how can I get some of that? How can right, I? Right. And so, um, you know, once we got folks like that together, and actually, too, I can do run some stories fairly. When I got my NPR show, I have zero, 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 zero uh, experience or education in the radio business. Zero. None really? of that. Wow. So I got, I got, I got hornswoggled. I don't get to use that word a lot into <laughs> this show. And my friend, just like you were saying, he said, yeah, I've got this little radio station up here that wants to talk to you. And then he went on to explain this show that was so intricate that even I was like, that doesn't sound like what a little radio station, but I don't know anything about radio. So let's do it. And then we're riding the radio station that day. And I hear, you know, when your friend is about to pull some shit on you and they had that giggle and you're like, what? And they're like, <laughs> like, well, then you get more alarmed. Like you start looking for like raccoons and like, where are we going? <laughs> you know? And then, so we get in the parking lot and he, and he, and I open the door and he almost boots me out and says, I got to get my kids. And he tears off to the school and I look up and it's NPR. Uh, and I, uh, I thought I was going to run. I did. Like I went to, I can't, I don't have an NPR. As I, I said, man, I didn't bring my NPR game. And I thought aloud, like I, I don't have an NPR game. And so just like this, I went in. And I slowed down and I told yeah. the story behind my poetry. Is it, they pulled out the Southern, you know, with the way yeah. we just, you know, we can't talk yeah. with our hands behind our back. And then the, <laughs> the, the manager of the station came out and he's like, you should have a radio show. And I was like, you're drunk, you know, and uh, he's, he's British. So I'm not going to do his accent. <laughs> he goes, he says, I love your accent. I was like, I love your accent. He's like, it's so suave. But like, you can read off a cereal box and they'd be like, this is the deepest shit I've ever heard. Yeah, you know, true, so, true. So, yeah. So that's, you know, where the, where the, the radio show came from. And so, Really, again, with the, this synergy, what I'm getting to in the community of it, um, I just I wanted to share that with people who who got it. And then quickly, I mean, you get to talk to bigger and bigger names because you don't want anything. Right, you know, right. You know, and they be, can sense that. They feel and, safe. And, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's everything. Like it's, it's If you want to review a restaurant, take the money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And if they give it to you, they give it to you. And they will if you've got the money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so anyway, I mean, off of the book. Yeah, but, that's so but, true. But the collective, that's where the magazine came from, you know, and, and, and I never thought that it would become a company, never in a million years, yeah. never. In a but again, it's like when people start to sneer, I'm like, it's money's not bad, you know, no. highly recommend it, you know, this um, is and, another and, artist and you see, fallacy. And you, I've, I know it's like, you're a sellout. Yeah. I want to be yeah. every room, yeah. every time that I read yeah. every time, you know, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's the point. And then it's the, the art world is the only one where you, when you begin, and I, I teach classes at UCLA and UGA on business uh-huh. and, and in the art. And I want okay. to say all this is because when you start, it's the only venue, the only people that when you begin to talk about money, even when they know that's what they've come to hear about, right. they become visibly uncomfortable. Yeah. It's really interesting. I, I did, um, this leadership business leadership training a couple of years ago online. And as I was listening to the first, you know, couple sessions or doing a um participating in a coaching session, I was like, I kept telling them, I was like, artists don't know any of this. Like, art my none of my friends know. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I mean, how do you use social media correctly? Yeah. Like again, well, I'm just not gonna do it. No, do it. Yeah. So I mean, so yeah. I would love to, I mean, talk to, um further some other time uh, yeah. about if you being if you would ever does it cost anything i was having this conversation every time i pitch yeah. the collective any smart artist always gets like so there's no contract in blood i don't have to give up my babies like no dude it's, it doesn't <laughs> cost it doesn't cost anything to to be a feel you know to be a member oh of wow thing. 
I'll definitely um, check it out. Yeah, it, it's just, you know, again, it, there's no deadlines. There's no rush. What I believe is that busy people don't give other busy people shit about being busy. That's true. And, uh, you know, you, you won't hear any like, why didn't you keep me back? Why didn't you call me back? Just circling you- back because I, I mess- texted you eight hours ago and I haven't heard from you. <laughs> block. I have a system. It's like you were so close to get blocked. Like my phone is right. It's my phone. I pay the bill. I'll talk to you. you know, so anyway, um, if you would, thank you for recording this. Um, yes. If it's cool, just uh, send this to me whenever yeah, you're ready with with the song, please. Okay. Um, you will come out next month with, uh, I know Richard Blanco for a fact, but C. Thomas Howell might be on that one too. Okay. Yeah, That's He's gone. Both- He's gone. I'm honored to be beside either of them. That's cool. And so as we, and as you go on, if you think of somebody that should be on this show, please tell me. I okay. Mean, it, it, it is, I mean, again, it, it, you, cool people don't bring douchebags to other cool people. Yeah. You know, it does, no. you know uh, unless you're best friends. And then it's like, dude, what the heck? I, I got you. You know, it's uh, not that, but you know, I'm sorry. I'm well, I, I know some great ones here. So I don't know if you have genre preferences. No, but... no, that's the point. That's another reason why this okay. works out is that when you get high quality, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, so that's what people say like, oh, I listen to everybody, a little bit of everything. That's what they're talking about. You know, mm-hmm. you know, that. you know. Yeah. So well, I know it... some great, a couple came to mind who are fantastic writers and fantastic humans too, you know. I mean, there are a lot of those crossovers, but <laughs> right. not, two, not, I, I'm no, you don't know why you lied that. Uh, you know, you're your boys the way. There's a lot of them. No, no, no. That's very cute of you. Jesus heard you. <laughs> We're all snowflakes. But um, so uh, if you need anything from me or you think of anything, let me know. Uh, Alicia will get in touch with you about the magazine interview. You got plenty of time to do that. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, it's been a true pleasure to talk to you, Chris. It's I been really a pleasure to time. talk to you too. Can't wait to yeah. see you both together in person, you and Anna. You will. I promise. You be cool. Right. Bye. All right. Bye. Let's slow things down for a second with Ready to Go by Krista Wells.
And now on Dante's, we have wonderful mother, wife, and the Southern entrepreneur behind Wild Honey Teas, Mrs. Misty Fletcher. Misty, how are you doing? Good. I'm doing good. Glad to be here. It is wonderful to have you here. And instead of saying, tell me a little bit about yourself, I'm going to ask, how does your radiant personality show through Wild Honey Tea? Well, that's a loaded question, considering the fact that um, I am a child of the 70s. Everything that is vintage screams to me, and I love putting anything vintage on a tee. I do have a little bit of a sarcastic attitude uh, on a daily basis, so those kind of uh, designs scream to me too. So, um, yeah, everything that I do pretty much has my personality in it. What inspired you to get into this industry and how did you come up with the name Wild Honey Teas? Well, I've always wanted to be my own boss. Um, again, that's pretty much a control thing on my end. Um, wanted to do something creative. I have always been a jeans and t-shirt kind of girl at heart. I would rather wear a comfy vintage tee and broken in jeans any day. I'm a girly girl, but... I love my tees um, and my lived-in jeans, um, and I just, I don't know. I just wanted to, to be my own person. I think as a mom, I'm not exactly a um, empty nester because my son, who's 22, still lives here, but I basically see the back of his head maybe 10 or 15 minutes a week, so... Um, my husband works like crazy. I still work a nine to five, but I wanted something else. I wanted something that was mine that, you know, just mine. With the designs, um, being sassy and, and, uh, addicted to the seventies, um, how do you use that taste to stay ahead of the curve as far as designs are concerned? I have learned after tons of research because, again, I I want to do something and I want to do it right the first time. Not that I'm not going to make mistakes, but I am a research queen. Like, I am a hoarder of information. So research, research, research went into all of the designs before I even launched. Um, and I learned really quickly that my favorite vintage tees never go out of style. They're always, always hot sellers. Um, so it's just a matter of finding my own spin to put on things, whether it be tie-dyeing some. Um, I'm about to start bleaching some, which is another hot um, design trend right now is the bleaching. Um, so yeah, I've got my absolute favorite vintage tea has got Stevie Nicks on the front where it says, uh, don't be a lady, be a legend. That's my absolute favorite. So that I cannot wait to put on a tee. Well, speaking of Stevie Nicks, my next question is, uh, what music inspires you? What do you listen to while you're at work? I, not that I'm ashamed to admit this, but I am a girl who loves her hair bands. I am all about the 70s. Southern rock, um, 80s rock, um, 
But I have learned after being in years of healthcare too, that you cannot be in a bad mood listening to oldies. So most days you will find me with 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Kind of a little bit of the 90s, not so much. But if you want to be in a good mood, especially if you have to work and get to work, then put on some oldies. That's where it's at. The name Wild Honey Teas has a music to it. Where did that come from, that name? I have always loved pictures of bees. I don't know why. It's one of those crazy things. Um, I learned just a couple years ago that I have got very close family members who have ventured into making honey, um, have their own hives, and Jim and I have gone and gotten their honey. I've made things from it. It's so good. Um, and it's so good for you. Um, so when I was, again, researching names of teas, I just kept coming back to wild honey. And I thought, you know, like a light bulb moment, wild honey bee, like wild honey tea. Like it just made sense. Um I've got all kinds of stuff already around my house. Like I've got jewelry that has bees on it. Like it, it, it was almost like a no brainer. Just kind of, it just kind of organically happened, I guess I'll say. Throughout this interview, you talked about the passion to create your own business for your independence, the hard study that you put into it before you even got started which is vital to the entire process, to the joy you have in it and the music you listen to. So to kind of tie all that into a bow, um, what advice would you give other women that are trying to find a similar kind of independence in business? Oh, that's super easy. Research, research, research. Pray about it. Pray about it. Pray about it some more. And then just go for it. Just do it. Like you're never going to um, feel bad about trying something new. Even if you fail at it, that's still a lesson. It's it's still it's still good. You know, it's still growing. Um, have I learned lessons along the way? Absolutely. Have I messed up t-shirts? Absolutely. But each time that I have... I've learned something and I've moved on from it and I've gotten better. Um, I never pressed a t-shirt before, but it's fun. It's, you know, it's just, it's fun. So I would say research, pray about it and just go for it. That's beautiful. And it's perfect. And it's practical. That's what's uh, missing a lot of the time from anything in the arts is practicality because people think that it crushes the creativity, but I've seen what you do and it's a business where people could get flooded by the same thing, but the fun that you put in it comes through in the flair. And people will see that once they check out your designs and to find those designs before I let you go, tell me how we can keep up with you and your business online. Um, I've got my website, uh, wildhoneytees.com. You can find me on Facebook, Wild Honey Tees. You can find me on TikTok, Wild Honey Tees. Um, Instagram, Wild Honey Teas GA, because again, I'm a Georgia girl at heart. Go dogs. Um, so yeah, super easy. I am out there. So you can always, 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 if you 
If you have any troubles finding me, you can always reach out to my friend Clifford Brooks. He will let you know where to find me. I most certainly will. Misty Fletcher, it has been amazing to have you on this show, and we're going to have you back because we need that spark. Awesome. I can't wait. All right. We'll see you. And let's pause right now before we bring on our next guest to hear Kiss from Nicole Witt. We could drive all night, get out of this town, change the scenery if that's what we really need. We could hold on tight, turn the radio up, find our way back when the nights weren't long enough. Baby, I miss your love. Like you want me, kiss Like you need me, kiss Me straight up to heaven tonight Kiss like you love me Every time you touch me, kiss Me with everything you have inside Oh, kiss me fortunate enough to have Anders Carlson we in the studio to talk about his life and his new book Disease of Kings. Anders how are you doing? I'm doing well thank you so much for having me. 
Really glad to be here. Um, it was wonderful to meet you last week at Southern Festival of the Books in Nashville, Tennessee. And I heard your reading then. And uh, of course, as soon as it was over there, I tracked you down and drug you on this show. So before we jump into your book and people get to experience some of that for themselves a little later, um, tell us what you're about and how you got here today. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm from northern Minnesota. I grew up in a town called Moorhead, which is basically an appendage of Fargo, North Dakota. So it's right on the North Dakota border. Uh, my parents are both Lutheran pastors. So a lot of my childhood consisted of shuffling from my mom's congregation to my dad's and, and vice versa. Uh, and I have two brothers. So we were, you know, sort of always on display at church, sitting in the front row. And we felt like we, so I think, you know, implicitly we kind of had this feeling that we either were like supposed to be the good kids or were, or were the bad kids, right. As, as pastor's kids. And so we were kind of rebellious. So we were kind of the bad kids and we'd try to stir up a little trouble at church. Like we'd wear our hats to church and the adults would t you know, take them off our heads and just things like that. But, you know, uh, ironically, you know, I was, I was a bit of a rebel as a kid and dealing with my parents' uh, careers was like a challenge for me. But ironically, I think I learned most of what I know about poetry and writing from listening to their sermons. Um, so that's definitely like part of where I got going on writing was just being a pastor's kid and listening to sermon after sermon for so many years. Um, and when I finished high school, I knew I wanted to go into the arts. Um, and I wasn't quite sure, you know, what, what that was going to look like for me, but I knew I'd probably never have much money, uh, being an artist. So my next thought was like, I want to figure out how to be relatively self-reliant and kind of learn how to sort of scrap. And my logic was if I can sort of almost remove myself from the monetary system, I can buy myself time to write and, and learn how to write, you know, read and write. Um, so I went off to a series of wilderness survival schools. Uh, actually all over the country and studied primitive skills like shelter building, fire starting, uh, trapping and tracking animals, that kind of stuff. And I was really into that stuff. But then sort of uh, by surprise, I met a lot of anarchist kids at those schools who know a lot about urban survival stuff. Uh, and so th those kids turned me on to dumpster diving, uh, hopping freight trains, uh, for transportation. And also they had weird tricks like how to ship mail for free. They had all these little scams. Uh, so I learned a lot from them. And then in my 20s, I really like applied all those things to my life. And I started dumpster diving for all my food, all my clothing. I stopped buying food altogether. Um, and I was living on a budget of like $3,000 a year, which was basically just covering my like dirt cheap rent and then emergencies. And that was like the only two things I was spending money on. And I had a little part-time job as a personal trainer and that covered rent. And otherwise I was reading and writing um, sort of year after year, trying to develop uh, my craft, trying to develop my voice. And I pursued that as hard as I could, um, which like eventually led me to, to publishing books. Yeah. It's not a topic often brought up and when it, when it naturally does, I love to jump on it with both feet and that's exercise. How does exercise play into your creative flow? That's a great question for me in particular. So I went to Fairhaven College in Bellingham, Washington, and that's a school where you get to design your own degree. And my degree was called Writing Through the Body. And it was all about creative writing and then like somatic psychology and how much my creative process was embodied. And 
that was something I just felt very intuitively as a person growing up. I was a skater growing up. I was always doing physical stuff. I was always filming skate videos. Um, and so when I started writing, I just, I started realizing that, Hey, all my good ideas are coming to me when I'm actually like exercising, when I'm moving. And so from that place, I, it's not quite like I can make it work every day, but if I'm in my routine, what I do is write for a few hours in the morning, sit down at a desk. But honestly, I'm like kind of grinding it out during those hours, trying to get some stuff on paper. That's like my Taurus bullheaded personality trying to grind. And honestly, I think of all my good ideas in the afternoons when I'm exercising. And for me, that's a lot of running, rock climbing, hiking, um, that kind of stuff. I'm really big into rock climbing. And when I'm doing the physical stuff is when I think of all my good ideas. So I kind of feel like my conscious brain is only so smart, but my subconscious brain is able to like come up with spontaneous ideas that I'm like, you know, essentially not able to conjure on my own. And then I you know, sort of employ those ideas the next day at the desk. Uh, and so that's my routine. So I feel like I rely on exercise and physicality uh, as much as anything to get my creative work done. It's totally paramount to my process. You use the word conjuring. I love that. And in, in, in the, in the idea of the alchemy that goes into poetry and disease of King sings with that. Um, what, what did, how did, how did you conjure the idea of, disease of kings for sure so it, it, it was a pretty organic process my first book the low passions had taken me 10 years to write, write. um i drafted a lot of poems for that project there, that book has 53 poems in it and i drafted close to 1500 while i was working on it over the course of 10 years so i i draft a lot and i throw away almost everything that's kind of my process and when I was done with that book, finally, I was ready to move on from that headspace. And that book has a lot to do with family and then relationships with strangers. And uh, when I started writing fresh poems after that uh, for Disease of Kings, I found myself writing about friendship. And that was sort of some fresh terrain for me. And I really started resonating with that as a subject. I started writing about this friend, North, who become, who's like the central character in the book. Um, and I was writing those poems and just, I couldn't, I kind of couldn't get away from them. I was sort of getting obsessed and I, I kept going and simultaneously the other type of poem I found myself writing, uh, sort of poems of loneliness and despair. Um, and, uh, that at the time, so looking, looking back at it, it looks obvious that that's like kind of a pairing friendship and then, and then like the lack of friendship. But at the time I was just drafting poems organically. And then at some point along the way, I noticed, oh, wait, I, I'm sort of exploring these two headspaces that have a really strong relationship. Uh, and at that stage, I started sort of crafting the narrative of the book more carefully and put it into this kind of almost like acts of a play structure where you have the friendship with North and then his temporary departure. Uh, and then you get his return and then you get kind of his ultimate departure at the end of the book. So you, you kind of have a, a structure that has a lot to do with the comings and goings of the friendship. There's a real world practical elegance to your work. And, and and for me, when I read it, it does resonate with its own kind of music. And, and a question that I always love to ask when that does strike within me is how does music influence your work? And, and are, are there genres in specific, specific that you reach for? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I think the first thing I think of right away is uh, the fact that I have dyslexia. And so as a kid, 
I really struggled to learn how to read and write. And in that headspace, uh, I was really wary of the written word and almost like made nervous by it. But I was really trusting of what I could hear. Uh, so oral language was something I could really rely on as a kid. And that got to the point where, you know, my parents were trying to teach me how to read. They would read aloud to me. And I was feeling ashamed because I wasn't learning. I knew I wasn't learning that I was supposed to be. Um, so they'd read me a whole page and then I'd say, hey, I know how to read. And I recite it to them uh, from memory, pretending I was reading off the paper. Um, so for me, I, I had this early sense that I really had to rely on my ear to get by. It was like a, almost like a survival element for me, survival technique. And uh, as I got older, I, I was able to realize that I had a great ability to like retain spoken language and memorize like its cadence, um, the musical cadence, the rhythm, and also the exact phrasing of syntax. Um, and my parents joke with me still that as I was growing up, uh, when we would watch like sitcoms or something like that on TV, after the show, my parents would be joking about what the characters had said, some dialogue exchange. And I would interrupt and say, no, that's not actually what the characters said. And I would have it memorized verbatim. And that was just kind of part of my brain, I think, from the dyslexia that I came to really lean on my ear. Um, so then when I became a poet, I think I sort of realized that I had some skills there without without meaning to. You know, they'd sort of developed on their own. Um, and I was able to like employ that as a writer. And so that has led me to do a lot of dialogue writing and of course the dramatic monologues. because uh, it's so it's you get so immersed in human voice. Um and in the cadences uh, of speech. Um, and that's just like a pure joy for me as a writer. Uh, I feel like that's like one of the most natural styles of writing for me is being able to tap into a, a voice and and like really try to nail uh, the, the sort of the temperature of a character and the personality behind a voice. Beyond the leaning on your ear, I love that by the way, what other technical cogs and wheels go into disease of kings well the collection is very narrative uh you're following one friendship through the whole book and it's essentially linear you're following them through time uh, across about two years of a time period so there's a strong narrative element and i think my brain is quite narrative as a writer um i really get attached to narrative situations uh quarrels between characters and i really want to like flesh them out and, and put them to music in a sense, right? In, 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 a, in a poetry structure. Um, and so there's a lot of work with narrative in the book. Um, you know, the, the point of incision for a narrative, where are you starting? Why is that the place you're starting? Uh, how much of the story are you getting? In a way, Disease of Kings is kind of like a, a short story or a short novel where you're only getting these little tidbits. You're getting like these moments of highest tension or the most illustrating moments. And ideally, in my mind, it's designed to let the reader kind of fill in a lot of gaps. And hopefully that's part of the pleasure of the reading experience. Um, so there's a lot of work with narrative, um, certainly a lot of work with image and getting certain images to pop and sort of, and that, that's a complicated process with craft, right? Like how do you create a scenario in a poem where the image will really shine and be uh, remembered by the reader? Uh, so certainly a lot of work with with image and that, that kind of tactile nature of the world, uh, how to bring the tactile alive in the poems. And I think that for me also ties to the work I'm trying to do with kind of spirituality or faith in the collection, which is for me, 
But this is true for me as a person too, as a dumpster diver, uh, having, having pastors as parents was always kind of like tricky because I felt very like, like as if I was supposed to understand the spiritual or be in touch with it in a special way because I'm a pastor's kid. And when I started dumpster diving in my 20s, I found that I could really like relate to this very practical style of faith where basically if you're a dumpster diver, you're going out at night, late at night, you know, it's midnight, everything's shut down. You're going out into the cold, into the darkness, and you don't know what you're going to find, but you always find something. And there's something about that process. I would go every night in my 20s. It was like an addiction almost. And uh, I would go out and you always find something. Uh, and there was this like element of faith to that very practical nightly activity that for me was like, this is a style of faith I can resonate with. Um, and I and I feel like I try to bring that to my poems where they're very like, in my mind, my poems are very immersive and tactile, uh, but hopefully kind of take you to a spiritual plane through these very practical elements. The <clears throat> direct way with which you, you talk about poetry and that there, it, it's a... Uh compartmentalized in a it, it, what I mean by that is that you you attack it from one two three and you end at ABC and 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 I gravitate towards that because often with that mindset you get a, a great idea of how you break into the business which is my next question like with agents and uh and and you know performing how did you get into the business of writing yeah so as I said for my 20s I was just reading and writing as much as I could and minimizing my expenses down to the very bare minimum so that I have, would have as much free time as possible. Uh, as I neared the end of my 20s, I applied to MFA programs in poetry that were fully funded. And so the idea for me there was I wanted to go to a program where they would be able to pay me to be there. Uh, and I got into um, Vanderbilt University where, where I went in Nashville, uh, which was a wonderful program for me. And uh, it's where I met my best friend, Edgar Kunz, the poet, uh, who has a new book out, Fixer. Uh, we're on tour together. So that's been, that's been awesome. So I was able to, you know, have this opportunity to meet who now is my best friend and like kind of a creative partner for me. Uh, that was wonderful at Vanderbilt. And also they gave me an amount of funding that to me was like, in, it's, it, you know, for anyone who has a normal job, it'd be like a relatively humble number. But for me, it was like this outlandish, uh, windfall of, of, of financial gift. And my reaction to that was not to like up increase my spending, but just to be like, I can use this money for years if I if I'm conservative with it. <laughs> and so I kind of maintained my cheap lifestyle and left Vanderbilt with quite a bit of money in the bank to keep writing. And my goal with that was entirely about my book. I just wanted time to write and time to write my book. And so and also while I was at the MFA, I I received a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. And I remember I had this funny conversation with my professor, Mark Jarman. Um, and he said, well, you know, you should be able to live on that for like a year. And I said, oh, it'll last a little longer than that. <laughs> so for me, I was like really wanting to stretch every dollar I was I was coming by um, in the pursuit of, of writing my books. Um, so I, I when I finished the MFA, I just kept working on my book. I, I, I knew I could get it stronger. I kept working on it. And then I had a very kind of lucky stroke where I published two poems in a journal called 32 Poems, which is a wonderful journal if you don't know it. Um, such a wonderful journal. They publish 32 poems in each issue, and it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful piece uh, to subscribe to. 
And I published these two poems and by chance, one of the Norton uh, authors read them and sent them to his editor, who's now my editor. And he said, hey, check out these two pieces. And then uh, Norton reached out to ask if I had a manuscript. And the timing felt very serendipitous. I had never submitted the manuscript. Um, and I was just getting to the point where I felt it was ready. Um, and so then I, I sent it to Norton and sort of had to sit on my hands for uh, about six months while he looked at it. Um, and, but then eventually they took it and I was like totally over the moon. I mean, it was one of the biggest moments of my life uh, to, to land with Norton. Uh, and to have my first book with them, The Low Passions. And um, that's kind of how I, I got that far. And then while I was touring for The Low Passions, one of the gigs I got was um, being the uh, Connecticut uh, poet poetry circuit poet for the year, where I basically was brought to Connecticut to read at universities there, which was like a wonderful experience. And at one of those universities, the professor who was hosting me said, hey, I know this agent in New York who I think would be really interested in your work. You might hear from them. I'm going to I'm going to let them know to reach out to you. And um, after that, I heard from Rob McQuilkin of Massey and McQuilkin, uh, who is now my my agent and um, just ended up having like a really great rapport with Rob. And um, he, he resonated with my work and signed me on and that he helped me place poems from disease of canes in journals and also helped me sell it uh, when the time came for selling it to norton uh so rob has been just like such a gift to me such a blessing and i felt like you know these things sort of came up in the in the in in my life as i was you know basically pushing as hard as i could to to make it but my approach was just like write as hard as i could and then hopefully things will will come and I don't know if that would, you know, sort of always work. But for me, by the time I published my first book, I was like, you know, 15 years in to writing like really seriously. Let's scoot back around to Disease of Kings. Uh, there are two people in it. You've, you've mentioned this before. Um, who are they and what's the difference or differences between them? Yeah. So um, there are two main characters. That's this friendship that you're following. The speaker is essentially based on me. His parents are both Lutheran pastors, and that comes up in the book. He has a safety net. He has parents who love him and can kind of be relied on uh, if he gets into trouble. Meanwhile, his friend North, uh, while, while they share this common lifestyle of dumpster diving for their food and wanting to like avoid traditional work, uh, they have that in common, but North is in a, a very different situation with his family. Uh, he not only does not have a safety net, but he's also taking care of his alcoholic father. Uh, so he is, in fact, you know, giving money to his dad and having to be responsible and provide for his father. And so that becomes a point of tension between the two of them. Uh, the speaker kind of doesn't have to face responsibility in the same way. Um, and they ultimately come to a head around that issue uh, as the collection proceeds. When you write the book, again, it took you 15 years. And, uh, you know, there there are many things that we do outside of that to make ends meet. And uh, is that true now? Like, what, what do you do outside of writing and touring now to, to keep the lights on? Yeah, I do a few things. I teach for Pioneer Valley Writers Workshop. Those are online workshops. So if anyone's interested in looking that up, Pioneer Valley does, uh, you know, wonderful classes. And I, I teach um, day-long things, week-long things, but also an ongoing poetry group that goes year-round, uh, which is a, a wonderful, a wonderful course. Um, so if, if you're interested, take a look. Uh, I'm also working on a screenplay. 
um, that I've been, you know, hired to work on. So that's been really cool. And it has allowed me to tap into my deep interest in dialogue. Uh, it's such a dialogue heavy genre. Uh, so that's been really fun to work on. I also, you know, make a good chunk of my income from giving university readings and being on tour. Um, so, um, you know, I get out there on the road a fair amount, especially with the, with the new book out. Um, so that's another part of my income. So I kind of cobbled together, uh, a few sources and that's kind of how I make it go a bit. Um, and you know, people do it different ways, but that's kind of the way that's worked for me is kind of cobbling together a few things and then trying to live, you know, fairly minimally. Round down, um, to end another practical note, uh, what advice do you have for poets that are looking to get signed and enjoy a book contract? Yeah. Um, my advice would be to do things slowly. Uh, you know, when I was in college, my professors said, why don't you start publishing these poems? And I said, no, they're, I'm not ready. I think they can get better. And also I kind of intuited that I didn't want to enter that headspace of like rejections and acceptances and what do other people think of my work? I, I wanted to maintain a privacy and the sense of what do I think of my work and what am I trying to do? So I did that. And then when I got to graduate school and I had a manuscript in the works, my teacher said, you should start submitting the manuscript for publication as a book. And I said, no, it's not ready. I know I can make it better. I'm going to take the time it requires. And I did that. And I think that put me in a very good position to land with Norton when they came knocking sort of, you know, uh, and so I would recommend taking your time, trying to develop your personal vision on your own terms. There's so much writing out there. You know, everyone's writing about everything. And it takes a long time to try to like develop a voice that is unique enough that people want to take it on, you know, and read it. And and it's uh, it's a long, tricky road. You know, it takes years. And so I think that's what I would mainly recommend is just digging deep inside yourself and maintain some kind of privacy with it because the last thing you want to do is conform to like the hot topic or like what's going on. First of all, because it's already being written, right? If, if you're writing the same things other people are, are writing, it's not going to stand out. Um, and it's sort of the last thing writing's about in a way is like ending up conforming to norms or ending up conforming to what is considered hot right now. Uh, ideally, your writing should be uh, unique on its own and it should be lasting beyond the moment. Rick Rubens, uh, I love following him. Uh, he said that uh, the audience comes last, and th that resonates here as it does there. It's that that they, you know, it, it's they're going to get it if you make it happen. You know, if it's not the same song. And yeah, and I'll, I want... I'll just quickly add to that that I I agree with that whole sentiment, but and I'll also add that clarity matters a lot to me. So when it does come time for sharing with an audience, uh, I think that stage is really important, and in my mind. Uh, a lot of poetry is obscure for obscure reasons. Um, and I think if you make your poems as clear as possible, you can actually break through more veils of mystery and like get to something bigger. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan. I would encourage young writers to seek out clarity and your poems will go farther. You, they can get to bigger mysteries. Well, I want to unveil a mystery now with one of your poems. Would you um, break one out? Yeah, absolutely. So this one is a dramatic monologue from Disease of Canes. Um, in this section of the book, the friend North has taken seasonal work in Alaska. So the speaker is left grappling with the loneliness he feels with his friend gone. 
And to sort of cope with the loneliness, he starts renting out North's bedroom as a bed and breakfast. And he's cooking breakfast for his guests with food from the dumpsters, right? But he's not telling the guests that they're eating trash. So there's a bit of comic relief uh, in this part of the book. So what I'm telling you, Cliff, is don't stay at my bed and breakfast. That's no, that's already logged in, dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's what's going on. And this dramatic monologue is the first guest who comes to stay at the bed and breakfast. His name is Lou. He's in his 70s and he's in town to bet on horse races. You don't start at zero. You start way below zero. You got your gas money, admission. You grab a dog and a beer and hit the ATM, which takes a not so small fee. By the time you set eyes on horses, you're down 30, 40 bucks and you haven't even placed a bet. I started coming when my wife died. She wouldn't marry a gambler. So after her funeral was my first chance in 47 years. Oh, I don't bet a lot of money. If you don't bet a lot, you can't make a lot but you can stay in it. Some guys, they hit the pick three in the superfecta. Those guys are gods. Not me. I just work the chalk and try to stay out of the red. To tide me over, my wife used to let me bet chocolate chips. We'd watch the races on TV and place our bets in bowls. She'd tease me for playing it safe. Loosen up, she'd say. Then she'd put it all on here is happy to win. She loved that horse. She'd lose, of course and go make cookies with her losses while I worked the chalk. After 47 years of that, it's hard to remember I'm betting real money, losing real money. When I win, I remember, I can tell you that much. Ah, I'll never be a god, but I'm still here. The only god I ever met in person was my wife. No bullshit. She hit the superfecta one time. Filled her bowl on four horses and named the order, the exact order, one, two, three, four, and she won. After we stopped shouting and cussing and jumping up and down, we did a little two-step right there on the living room rug, and at the end, I even dipped her. She had red hair for miles. It was beautiful. Anders Carlson, we. Um... Before I let you escape, um, how do we find you online? How do we buy your book? And how do we keep up with you on tour? Yeah, so you can find me online at AndersCarlsonWe.com, just my full name. And that has also a full tour schedule uh, listed on the website. So you can track me down. Would love to meet you if I come through your town. Um, and you can buy my book, Disease of Canes, uh, anywhere books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, uh, bookshop. It's its its everywhere books are sold. So hopefully uh, you pick it up and enjoy it. Anders, this has been fantastic. And uh, when you have another book come out or you get bored and want to talk, we will have you back on the show. Absolutely. I'd be very glad to be back. Thanks for having me, Cliff. Yes, sir. Well, we've done it again, ladies and gentlemen. We've successfully made it to the end of this hour without a single fight. <laughs> My name is Clifford Brooks, and I've been your host for Dante's Old South. I want to take a minute again to express my love for y'all, because for the last few years, I've had the trials and tribulations of building a show I believe worth your time, and I thank you, the listener, for always hanging in there with me while I worked out the kinks. Let me thank again Wild Honey Teas, Lucid House Press, Richard Wenham and Michael Amade, NPR, WUTC, 
the Crown Restaurant, and the Red Phone Booth were helping me keep the lights on in this place. The holidays are upon us, y'all. And we're all supposed to love and often we don't see that going on. So let's not worry about everybody else and just make sure that we take the right version of us out into this world to share joy, love, and happiness. Y'all have a great Thanksgiving. See you next month.